welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. My name is Justin Carter, and I'm the science news editor for the Madden America website. You can find all of our reporting under the research news category on the homepage. Psychiatric diagnosis has come under increased scrutiny in recent years following the release of the fifth edition of the APA Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM-5, in 2013. In the lead-up to the release of the DSM-5, two organizations that played a prominent role in challenging the, quote, Bible of Psychiatry were the British Psychological Society and the Society for Humanistic Psychology, which is Division 32 of the American Psychological Association. Leaders of these two groups, including our guests today, came together to form the Task Force for Diagnostic Alternatives, a group of mental health professionals committed to challenging and reforming diagnostic practice in the field. Today, on February 12th, 2020, the Task Force on Diagnostic Alternatives released a new open letter regarding the reform and revision of diagnostic systems in mental health. Listeners can find the full letter and the links for this post and can add their names and support as well. I'm fortunate to be joined by two leading members of the task force, Sarah Kamens and Peter Kinderman, who are here to discuss the new open letter. Sarah Kamens is an assistant professor of psychology at the State University of New York, SUNY, College at Old Westbury, and is co-chair of the Task Force for Diagnostic Alternatives for the Society of Humanistic Psychology. Her research examines the intersections between emotional distress and structural marginalization. More specifically, she studies the ways in which lived experiences of psychosis and trauma are entangled within social conditions in the world. Peter Kinderman is the past president of the British Psychological Society and a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Liverpool. He's also a past guest on Madden America podcast and the author of A Manifesto for Mental Health, Why We Need a Revolution in Mental Health Care, which came out last year in 2019, and A Prescription for Psychiatry, Why We Need a Whole New Approach to Mental Health and Wellbeing, 2013. I want to welcome you both to the Madden America podcast. Thank you so much, Justin. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. And hi. Great to have you here. So my first question is for Sarah. Can you give our listeners a little background on what the Task Force for Diagnostic Alternatives is and why it was formed? Sure. So the Task Force on Diagnostic Alternatives is a task force of the Society for Humanistic Psychology, um, which is Division 32 of the American Psychological Association. We originally came together back in 2011 um, when David Elkins was the president of the society. And this was around the time of DSM, the, the development of DSM-5. At the time, David Elkins had read a letter that was published by the British Psychological Society, written by Peter Kinderman, who's with us here today, critiquing the proposals for what was um, the up-and-coming at the time, DSM-5. And Dave read this and, and contacted Brent Dean Robbins, who was then the secretary of Division 32, and contacted me because I had uh, written a master's thesis on the DSM-5 controversies and had some expertise in the area. And Dave said to the two of us that he'd like to put a team together um, to produce a letter from professionals in the United States. We felt that if our colleagues across the pond, as, as we often say, are critiquing a manual and a diagnostic system that's developed in, in this country, we should obviously, uh, inspired by their efforts, follow suit and publish something from, from our own perspective as well. Um, so we, we developed that letter and we ended up deciding, it was, it was actually Brent's idea to put the letter online on a petition website. And we kind of thought, you know, we'll send this out to our colleagues. Um, and, you know, we may get a few dozen endorsements from like-minded professionals. And I think it was within the span of maybe a few days, we received support from over a thousand individuals. And at the same time, um, institutional endorsements started coming in. And we were absolutely overwhelmed by the response. Um, it seemed that we had tapped into something, um, a kind of concern or discontent with the developing DSM system that was out there. By the end of our campaign, we had endorsements from over 50 professional organizations, including 16 divisions of, of the APA, if, if, if you count Division 32 as well, and over 15,000 individuals, many of them mental health professionals. So. 
after this, we we really wanted to um, you know understand that kind of um, collective concern that we had tapped into, and we started to expand our efforts. And under Brent's presidency, so Brent became president of Division Thirty Two in two thousand and thirteen. Our efforts kind of evolved and expanded to focus not only on critiques of the DSM, but also um, to focus on alternatives. By that time, DSM-5 had, had been published. There was no possibility of reforming its content. So we, we decided, you know, we would continue to critique kind of the basis of the DSM systems, but also look and explore um, the possibility of whether or not there are alternative systems out there and, um, and what those were. And our committee kind of went um, evolved and uh, had several names and divisions and kind of iterations over time. We were the, we became the DSM five reform committee, and um, we had a separate international diagnostic summit committee for a time that had produced an online and in person global summit on diagnostic alternatives for exploring these same matters. Uh, we met in person in 2014, right before the APA convention that year. Um, and eventually we became the task force for humanistic approaches to psychological diagnosis. Um, and then finally, um, in recognition of the fact that our efforts really, um, although based in the tradition of, of humanistic psychology and humanistic approaches, also expanded beyond that and spoke to many professionals who didn't necessarily identify as humanistic psychologists, we became the task force on diagnostic alternatives. And we thought that that, that title would be more encompassing, um, although uh, still really using the tools of humanistic psychology to, to address these issues. And so my co-chairs on that task force are Brent Dean Robbins and, and Frank Farley, a former president of the APA. And we've now joined forces with our colleagues in the UK, and we're really um, proud to do so, um, especially because Peter was uh, um, the writer of, of that original British Psychological Society letter that inspired our own letter and has now taken up the effort to write the letter that we are here to discuss today. And, and, and so Peter has taken the lead on that, and we're really excited to to join with with him and, and with our other colleagues from the UK on that. Thank you. That's great. So Peter, Sarah mentioned two past letters, the mm-hmm. BPS letter on diagnosis and then the, the open letter that went viral contesting the DSM-5. Mm-hmm. How is this new open letter different? Uh, is it responding to certain movements in the mental health field that are going on currently? Um, how is this letter different in tone and approach than the previous letters that you've been involved in? Thanks. Yeah. So, so this approach is is well. First of all, it's different because of the timing and the sort of professional context that, w- that we live in. So, back in uh, 2011, we wrote both the British Psychological Society and uh, the Society for Humanistic Psychology wrote specifically as a response to what was occurring right then, which was the proposed revision to DSM-5, DSM-4 to become DSM-5. So although the letter that I wrote, the open letter that went viral, the British Psychological Society's response to uh, the APA was general, it, it, it spoke to the issue of are the sort of experiences that fall under the uh, remit of mental health symptoms of illnesses at all, is this the best way to think about our mental well-being? There was a particular challenge. What do we say to the American Psychiatric Association about its revision of DSM-4? So it had a a specific point in time and a specific purpose. What's happened since then is obviously DSM-5 has been published. It hasn't been boycotted. It hasn't been ignored. And it's evolved into the new quasi-Bible of psychiatry. We've also had the proposed revision of the World Health Organization's classificatory system, ICD-10, to become ICD-11, which is in draft form. We've also had uh, RDOC, the research domain criteria. And since 2011, 2013, we've had a number of people proposing alternatives to DSM-5. So the issue is still being discussed, but we're in a slightly different phase. We, as we got together, we, we realized that we were talking about these issues. We were talking about the inadequacies of the quasi-medical pathologizing diagnostic system. And in a sense, we realized that instead of critiquing a particular proposal at a particular time, we had views on the whole nature of what it means to go about proposing diagnostic reforms. And rather than take each one in its turn, so to to try to write a response to DSM-5, 
and a response to a minor revision of DSM-5. Instead of responding to the invention of gaming disorder or, or proposed revisions to RDoC and so forth, what we thought we would do is, is group the whole issue of diagnostic approaches in psychiatry together and write to the leaders of the main groups involved in those uh, efforts together. So instead of taking each individual idea separately, we, we would do it on block. What we hope to be doing is drawing together the wide body of people who critique psychiatric di diagnosis generally. I mean, it is intriguing to me as both an activist in the area, but also an observer, that you've got different diagnostic systems that purport to be better than each other, therefore, by definition, critiquing the validity and utility of the other systems, and yet purporting to have read across between the systems. So you can go to websites even that tell you how, if you're using an ICD-10 diagnosis, how it reads across to DSM-4 or DSM-5 or ICD-11. So what you've got is this curious kind of Schrodinger's diagnosis, which is their diagnosis is invalid, ours is better, and yet they're the same thing, which kind of is nonsensical. So to bring all of this together, we thought, let's write a critique of how we should go about the business of searching for appropriate psychiatric diagnosis or, more properly, alternatives to diagnosis. So we talk about, we don't go through the DSM-5 proposals line by line, we talk about what's the purpose of this, what are you aiming at, is this a diagnostic system to identify the pathologies in the uh, population and sell drugs? Or are you actually interested in the well-being of the population? And if you're interested in the well-being of the population, how should you go about it? Who's leading this? Is this an exercise by psychiatrists and mental health professionals for psychiatrists and mental health professionals? Or is this a democratic exercise? In which case, who's leading, who's coordinating, who's chairing these things? Are these things um, single perspectives? You know, are you assuming that there are such things as mental illnesses and trying to you know, examine the entrails of the slaughtered goat in order to find out which diagnostic system is best? Or are you critiquing the system at all, uh, you know, from, from first principles? Are you considering alternatives? Are you considering different perspectives? And if so, are you including sociologists, philosophers, critical psychologists into the mix? And then when it comes to actually looking at the processes themselves, are you actually as practitioners exploring diagnosis open to alternatives? Are you exploring alternatives such as psychological classifications, which personally I don't think are that much better than pathological uh, classifications? Are you considering the sorts of approaches used by social workers or social pedagogues? Are you considering phenomenological approaches? Are you considering a public health perspective rather than a pathologizing perspective? So our open letter sets out all of those possible alternative perspectives and some of the principles that we think should apply uh, to the business of looking at diagnosis. Whereas, as I say, in 2011, we were quite focused on um, a critique of the proposed changes from DSM-4 to DSM-5. Thank you. Sarah, did you want to add anything to, uh, to that discussion about why this letter, um, why now? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, just to add to something that, that Peter was saying about you know this, this this particular kind of time where we have all of these different alternative systems being proposed. It's a really unique time, and and, and in some ways, it's a really exciting time because there was a period of kind of lull. Um, I would say, kind of after the '80s, after DSM three, which was considered um, something of a change in in the, in the way the diagnosis was done, as something of a, a, a major and radical change. In fact, there was this period of lull where. Uh, researchers and practitioners were really laboring under the DSM-3 system and very invested in its success and uh, had strong beliefs in its success. It was a period of what uh, philosopher of science Thomas Kuhn would have called nor normal science really trying to support that paradigm. And then um, this anomalous evidence uh, started to emerge that the system wasn't really holding up empirically by its own standards. 
uh, there was all, all of this overlap or comorbidity between the diagnoses, fuzzy boundaries, um, other types of empirical problems that I, that I won't kind of get into the, the details of now, but now we've got all of these different systems being proposed. And, and as Peter said, they kind of critique each other, but then they're, they're at, at the same time um, kind of uphold the still centralized um, use of the DSM and now, now the DSM-5. And I think that aside from the fact that you have all of these critiques out there um, and, and then this kind of a, a unusual continuation of using something that's being critiqued that, that, that has been identified as not having the, the types of validity and reliability that we, that we would hope for, we also have the situation where paradoxically, when the DSM is used in clinical and counseling settings, when it's used in practical settings, we ask of our clients and patients and those with whom we work, however you want, um, however, however we want to call or, or, or identify them or however they identify themselves, more importantly, we ask of them to have belief in this same system that we as researchers and professionals are are somehow permitted to identify as faltering and and problematic and and if those with whom we work do not hold belief in in that system and their own place in that system as we would identify it we we say that they they lack insight into their right. their diagnosis or, or their mental illness and this this to me seems to be a great hypocrisy of the present time um, and so i think that the uh, uniqueness of this period and the excitement of this period you know, is something that's notable, but also something that can be a little bit deceptive um, because we are still using that DSM system. And, and, and as our open letter identifies, a lot of these systems that have been proposed would not be a true paradigm shift if they're successful. Mm -hmm. RDoC, if it's successful, tries to identify these underlying, um, it says, um, you know, psychological and biological systems with a heavy, heavy focus on the biological. If that's successful, all it actually is, is a successful actualization of this neo-Kreplenian dream of mm -hmm. identifying biomarkers um, that failed with, with the DSMs. And a true paradigm shift would occur if, um, as, as we propose in the letter, we somehow tie this overwhelming evidence for, for, for social and structural factors to mental distress. That would be a true paradigm shift. And just to build on that, one of the things that happened back in 2011 was that when we came together and said the proposed changes to DSM-4 to become DSM-5 are really very poor. They're, they're, they're really not the direction of travel that one should go. One of the sort of responses by mental health professionals was to say, ah, yes, well, DSM, of course, is an American system. Uh, in Europe, we use ICD. But that doesn't challenge the underlying paradigm. Uh, I mean, uh, we were in danger mm -hmm. when we wrote the letter in 2011 and when we wrote our response to the DSM reforms that people... People misinterpreted, I think, what we were saying. So because people are so invested in the idea that there are things called mental illnesses and we just have to find the right or the best way to diagnose them, but the underlying concepts definitely exist, the assumption goes, that they don't question that. Indeed, when I talk about things like hysteria or homosexuality, which have been dropped from the psychiatric lexicon as diseases, one of the responses that people make is to say, oh, yes, we've realized that those phenomena shouldn't fall into the category of illness, but we still believe there's a category of illness. They don't question the validity of the categorization. They just question whether those two particular instances should be part of that category. So when we criticized DSM-5, people responded by going, well, we've got HITOP and we've got RDOC and we've got ICD and there's ICD-10 and there's ICD-11. But our point in this letter is, all of them have assumptions and failings built into them, assumptions of pathology, assumptions that we can, through making subjective judgments, define what normal is and define what ill is and define what abnormal is. And so we wanted to take a step back and challenge all of those underlying assumptions and by challenging them, set out what some of the underlying principles should be when we start to look at mental health. Like, like I say, what's the purpose of this? If the purpose of this is just to define those illnesses that you assume exist, you're missing a point. Uh, who's leading this? So if the leadership is by psychiatrists, for psychiatrists, because after all, all you have to do is do the job of psychiatry, which is to define illnesses and then treat them, you're not doing your job properly. We need to challenge that. Um, are you including alternative and diverse voices? Are you including the voices of people who think that those assumptions need to be challenged? So 
we, I think we did a good job in 2011. We need to do a broader job now and a more conceptual job. And that's what this letter is about. Thank you. Yeah, I want to pick up on these assumptions that are built into the to all these current sort of diagnostic systems that you're speaking about. Uh, one of the points made early on in the letter is that current diagnostic systems, quote, identify and locate problems within individuals, end quote. Uh, and Sarah, I know the intersection of social structures and mental health is an area of your research as well. So I'm wondering how are our relationships, communities, cultures involved in the symptoms that then get diagnosed by psychiatry and psychology? It's a great question. Um, And I think that there are kind of two ways in which we can look at this. One is from the side of um, epidemiological and other, let's say, quantitative research evidence that examines associations and relationships between mental distress um, on the one hand and, and, and social experience, uh, social determinants on the other. And then we can also look at this from the side of, of human experience, which we know from, from qualitative research evidence, from what we might call quote-unquote clinical experience, which is really kind of at its, at its base, just exposure to the experiences of other human beings. When we think about the, the quantitative research evidence, it's, it's really clear that social factors play an enormous and a crucial role in the generation of mental distress. And I think what's more is that we can also begin to unpack those social factors. And um, there's, a, there's a growing field called uh, the structural competency movement that, that has sought to do so. And the structural competency movement seeks to expand um, what's often called cultural competency, understanding the cultural factors that might play into mental distress or might play into a, a specific person's life situation um, in order to examine um, institutions and policies and, and, and in particular inequalities that are based in class differences differences in race and in stigma-based inequalities that, that can lead to health disparities and disparities in access to basic resources. So it's a way of kind of applying a social justice and a racial justice approach to understanding the, the social determinants of, of mental distress. And, you know, we can take the example of psychosis, which is an area of interest of mine. The research evidence has clearly laid out that psychosis, the experience of psychosis, is very much tied to social and structural experiences such as homelessness, not having a place to live, housing insecurity, economic inequality, racial and ethnic segregation, multiple deprivation, childhood trauma. So, so, so all of those really difficult social and structural experiences um, uh, play in, uh, we know, to, to psychosis from, from, from that research evidence. And then thinking about things from the kind of side of, of human experience, um, we might say that these quote-unquote symptoms are also simply symptoms of exposure to, to our particular world. And, and, and I think it's important to note, you know, this, this open letter is being produced by the, or has, you know, has been developed by the, a task force of the Society for Humanistic Psychology. And humanistic psychologists have long historically pointed out that many forms of psychological distress are normal reactions to abnormal circumstances in the world. And in that way, we might not necessarily see them as symptoms in the medical sense, but as part and parcel of the suffering and the distress that makes us human being with and, a full range of experience. I was just thinking that maybe we should also be a little bit confident in ourselves. So some things have happened in the world of psychology, critical psychiatry. Yeah, to be honest, the people who, who pay attention to work that's um, publicized on Mad in America. So after 2011, I think that we were surprised by the level of response, positive response that people got to our letter in 2011. But, you know, out there, there are a lot of people who are hungry for not only alternatives, but the coordination of alternatives. Certainly in the UK, around the clinical psychology profession in the UK, there's been a lot of talk about formulation as an adjunct to, or as I would prefer, and as, for instance, people like Lucy Johnson suggest, as an alternative to diagnosis. We've seen a little bit of a reawakening of the applied scientist model, so psychologists, and for that matter, other mental health professionals, having a bit more professional confidence in the fact that they have a model of addressing human problems and needs, the scientist-practitioner model, which is fundamentally different from the idea of diagnose and treat illnesses. It's to analyze and then respond to human need. That's a different Mm -hmm. model. We've become more confident in that. We've seen more research into 
the networks of associations and mediating processes between life events and mental health outcomes for people, not only signatories to our letter, but just across the, the profession. We've seen the development of cogent, coherent, alternative approaches, um, such as the power threat meaning framework. We've started to challenge these sorts of ideas. And for me personally, one of the things that's happened over the past six years or so, seven years since the letter in 2011, is I've started to realise some of the potential for not only capturing information about individual psychological phenomena, but also capturing those social determinants that Sarah talked about. I think internationally, because we've been so focused on identifying disorders, we've taken our eye off the fact that it's perfectly possible to measure, to identify, to categorise, to respond to, to take seriously both clinically and politically the experiences that people have, like self-harm or like low mood or like anxiety or like um, hearing voices, the phenomena that people experience, and the events in people's lives, like domestic violence, like racism, uh, like losing a job, like failing exams at high school or university. And I mean, certainly for me, it was an eye-opener to realise that within the diagnostic frameworks, within especially the World Health Organization's framework, because it comes from a public health perspective, there are at least the beginnings of alternative ways of making sense of our difficulties that have been just blanketly ignored as we continue to search for pathological diagnosis. So I think we've learned internationally a lot more about the way that our understanding of how to make sense of mental health problems can evolve because we've started to be a bit more confident in critiquing the, the, the disease model of psychiatry. I appreciate that a lot, Peter. And I, and I would say, you know, I, I would want to emphasize also um, that there are really serious consequences to ignoring that evidence we have and those developments we have and, and, and that confidence we have in um, uh, using, you know, psychological models. Um, and that yeah. is that when we, when, we locate, when we locate symptoms within an individual, it can be detrimental on a number of levels. One is to that particular person who is then not encouraged to or supported in examining the way in which their unique life historical circumstances might play into their distress. So the person is actually um, not encouraged to, to explore the ways in which their social environment actually contributes to how they're feeling. But also on the broader societal level, exposure to this sort of mental health discourse that identifies problems within individuals gives us a broader excuse in a certain way not to look at these social structures that make us suffer and that make us quote unquote sick, not to critically examine them, not to change them. You know, Peter, you've, as you've mentioned, you've been doing some wonderful work in this regard. And so has Brent Dean Robbins, another co-chair of this task force, um, who's been looking at work, who's been doing some work on social pathologies. And, 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 and you, you, Justin, have joined Brent um, in some of the, this endeavor as well. I'm somebody who believes that my thought processes emerge from physical processes of a organic brain, right? I, I, I think, I, I know I think with my brain, but I'm, I am genuinely interested in neuroscience. I'm interested in what happens biologically when people lose their jobs. I'm interested in whether there are consequences that you can see in not only in the psychological functioning of people, so changes to your self-esteem, changes to the way that you relate to others, changes to a sense of optimism or, or, or agency for the future. But when people lose their jobs, I'm interested in the psychological and social consequences. I'm not at all uninterested in the biological consequences of losing your job. And if people show me that there are measurable and identifiable changes to to brain processes following a major life event, I'm really interested in that. But you know what? It's more likely that we'll be able to see changes in brain functioning and psychological phenomena following major life events than we will by studying the etiology of major depressive disorder. I mean, it's, it's actually a foolish way to study neuroscience, let alone a foolish way to study sociology and psychology. So I absolutely agree with you, Sarah, that if we want to study, if we want to understand how toxic societies impact on us as human beings, we've got to move away from the disease model. But you know what? I think that if we want to understand how life events impact on a child's developing brain, we'd be better off ditching the disease model there as well. 
Absolutely. I, I would, um, you know, I think that it's important to say that, of course, all of these experiences have biological correlates and biological determinants as well. I think one of the questions is, is simply what does it mean um, to focus primarily or sometimes even solely on those biological determinants? What happens when I identify um, uh, you, Peter, as having, let's say, anxiety or depression and um, provide you with a, a medical treatment for that or maybe a psychological treatment for that um, and don't focus on the fact that that you have just lost your job. Um, and I think that those are yeah. those are the types of questions that we're asking. And so, so absolutely, I think it's really important to say there's no denying um, that we are biological beings and that all of the phenomena that we're talking about um, have biological correlates and often biological determinants as well. I think a really good example of a biopsychosocial model that really takes all of this to, into account is the, the social defeat theory of psychosis. And the idea of the social defeat theory of psychosis is that all of these social and structural risk factors that I had mentioned um, as, as risk factors for psychosis, homelessness, childhood trauma, uh, migration, etc., have underlying them the common denominator of social defeat or being excluded from um, a dominant social group. So that experience of marginalization and the social defeat theory says that that experience of marginalization has an effect on the dopaminergic system and, and, and basically draws on an animal models and, and some, some imaging research um, to show that in paradigms of social defeat, indeed, there are alter, alterations in the mesolimbic dopamine system. Um, and so, so we can, of course, model things like that. I think again, the question is, what does it what does it mean, um, you know, to talk about someone's dopamine system when they're sitting in front of you and they've just lost their job, um, and, and and so so there's a question of context yeah. as well. And you know what? That's entirely consistent with the extremely good work by Jim Van Os in mm -hmm. in the Netherlands. Yes, and Jim is looking at dopaminergic pathways. He's looking at critical risk periods in the developing adolescent brain. He's looking at how we as human beings, but also we as biological human beings respond to the social stresses that we find ourselves in. And you know what? Jim Van Os thinks that we should reject labels like schizophrenia because they don't help his research. Well, thank you both. This discussion uh, leads to another important question about how the current diagnostic systems impact service users and people who are accessing services, as, as you've both talked about. Uh, and then there, there are also people who find the current psychiatric diagnoses helpful. Uh, so can you address this point? What might it look like uh, if your letter is successful in opening up and challenging the current diagnostic paradigm uh, and opening up more frameworks? How might this impact service users if there were multiple uh, systems to choose from? It's a wonderful question, Justin, first of all. Um, if people have a number of systems that are in play and, and at any particular time in kind of our general cultural milieu, um, in general public discourse, there's more of a freedom of choice. Um, and I think in general, more of an understanding of the, kind of the, the relativity of these systems. One of the issues with DSM-5 is that once these diagnoses are put into play, they're, they're reified within public discourse. They're, they're made concrete. They're really seen as these definitive biological aberrations. And I think that having options that are different from the DSM would would allow people to kind of explore the meanings of, you know, what their particular distress is to them. Now, I think it's really important that you're asking about, uh, Justin, about people who, who do find the current system helpful, who do find the DSM helpful. And that is, you know, that is definitely the case. I think that there are, um, there are certain psychological um, benefits to understanding, for example, that one is not alone, that other people have had you know, similar experiences, that those experiences can be named and described, that people have, have gotten better or have felt better, um, and that there, there's hope there. And so one of the questions is, um, first of all, what are those benefits? And I've, I, I've named some of them, but also, are those benefits unique to the DSM? Are there, are there other ways in which other descriptions of mental distress, way, approaches to mental distress, like formulation, like the power threat meaning framework, which is something that has recently come out of the UK, um, understanding the ways in which power relationships and um, threats to one's own personal ident identity and integrity and the ways in which we make meaning of those experiences might, might play into our identifications and our understandings 
how can those types of alternatives also maybe um, help people connect with communities, understand that they're not alone, understand that there is hope out there? And so, so, so we have this greater, we will have this greater f- uh, freedom of choices uh, as well, but we also have to kind of respect people's choices either way. If they find, if, if they find the, the DSM and ICD systems helpful in describing their distress, we can work with that, but we can also, you know, um, offer and explore other alternatives as well. And I've worked with a number of people in my practical and my clinical work where, um, you know, the DSM system was helpful for them to understand, you know, more about, more about themselves. I think the only issue there is that I'm not sure that they were also given other options to choose from. They were, they were simply told that the DSM system would be the most helpful. One of the things that is significant especially on social media, is the absolute vitriol that people receive if they dare to suggest alternatives to the dominant disease model of psychiatry. I am led to understand that people get a lot of abuse on social media anyway, but speaking personally, I've received an awful lot of abuse on social media for daring to suggest there are alternatives. So I think Sarah's absolutely right. One of the things is, you know, we're not telling anybody how they should think and certainly not telling people how to how they should think about their own difficulties but we are suggesting that there are alternatives but merely doing that is enough to get you a lot of criticism mm-hmm. i'm also taken by the fact that i think for an awful lot of people we haven't been afforded the opportunity of thinking in any alternative way so i'm very taken by a blog that i read a few years ago by uh, a junior psychiatrist but he, he seems a very pleasant and caring chap who slipped into his blog that he was his writing was quite powerful but also appeared to reflect a genuine belief that if he took somebody who was profoundly depressed and couldn't tell them that they were ill he had to respond by telling them they were being weak and stupid and it's really interesting that we are i think so constrained into this disease model of thinking that Many, many people, whether they're people seeking help from the psychiatric system or people working in the psychiatric system, seem to default to the notion that if they can't use language of pathology and illness, there simply is no other way of describing people's problems other than to use pejorative moral language. So it seemed to be impossible for people to say, I am anxious or I am depressed. If you can't say, I am ill with depression, you have to say, I am being weak and stupid. And, and, and I personally want to move away from that way of thinking. So to return to your, your question, Justin, you know, what, what do we envisage? I mean, I would love to see a situation where I could go to my family doctor, tell my family doctor that I'm feeling depressed, and my family doctor could say, okay, well, let's explore why. I mean, in the words of power threat meaning, could say, what's happened to you? And then you could explain what's happened to you, and you could discuss alternatives. Personally, I think that that immediately turning to medication to help would be an unwise choice. But, you know, I want people to listen to what I'm experiencing, understand what I'm experiencing, uh, have a name for what I'm experiencing, but not to assume that by understanding and listening and naming my experience that they're therefore diagnosing an illness and should treat it. I think they should listen to my experiences, understand it, name it, report it if necessary. But, you know, it raises the question of report to whom and why. So if I turn up in my family GP, my family doctor, and say that I'm feeling anxious and depressed and reveal that I'm being abused by my partner, you know, one of the options is, do I need a safe house? Do I need the police involved? So, so it's about giving us the opportunity to name and describe what's happened to us and to start to think about alternatives that can address those problems and not to default into a, a, an illness treatment drug inside the functioning of my brain, neurochemical abnormality, um, you know, neurotransmitter dysfunction, chemical imbalance model. I get quite frustrated at the fact that we are offered a take-it-or-leave-it model of you're either ill, in which case you'll, you'll get this kind of help, or you're not, in which case you can just bugger off, and that annoys me. And I, I want to I dig into the letter a little bit uh, and the different considerations that the letter names that should be addressed by any diagnostic system in order to push forward towards a new paradigm that works better for clinicians, researchers, and service users. So, Sarah, can you, can you start by walking us through some of these considerations around the guiding values and principles and the different sort of uh, recommendations that the letter makes for, for all these uh, organizations that are working on diagnosis? 
Yeah, um, the recommendations that that we make in the letter in part draw upon a document that was recently produced by one of the work groups that came out of our global summit on diagnostic alternatives, again, another effort of our task force. Um, when we met back in 2014, we kind of split up into groups with various missions. And one mission was to, to come up with some kind of meta guidelines or meta standards for developing new diagnostic systems or improving existing diagnostic systems or developing alternatives to diagnosis entirely. You know, what, what are we looking for when we're thinking about alternatives? And so we ended up producing and eventually publishing the standards and guidelines for the development of diagnostic nomenclatures and alternatives in mental health research and practice. It it was um, me and a group of colleagues, Lisa Cosgrove, Shannon Peters, Nev Jones, Elizabeth Flanagan, Eleanor Longdon, Sarah Schultz, Brent Dean Robbins, Steve Olson, Rebecca Miller, and Pesach Lichtenberger. So we, we, were, we were a, a large and, and, and diverse group, and we, we kind of came up with these principles, some of which are outlined in, in our letter. Um, and one is that the guiding values and principles of developing any or improving any diagnostic system or alternative uh, should be the general promotion of public health, of human health, and human well-being. The purpose of developing or improving a diagnostic system should not be professional or commercial benefits. So there have been some critiques of the DSM development process in particular that, you know, the timeline has really not necessarily been a timeline that, uh, that accords to scientific goalposts or other types of scholarly goalposts, but rather um, the, the, the financial needs of the American Psychiatric Association at that particular time that it generates a, a large portion of its re revenue from DSM sales. We thought that that was important to lay out. Um, also, conflicts of interest. So, so diagnostic systems and alternatives should be developed free from from industry influence, based on scientific evidence that is that is unbiased, and that everyone involved should be transparent about and reduce all types of conflicts of interest, financial, institutional, intellectual, ideological, to the extent that that's that's possible. Also, in terms of the leadership, those who are charged with developing or revising diagnostic systems or alternatives should be members of the general public, should, should include members of the general public, should include current or former users of mental health services, experts by experience, should include family members, um, in addition, of course, to professional representatives um, who, are, who are free from those conflicts of interest that I, that I just mentioned, and that all of these stakeholders, so service users, families, community members, mental health professionals, all of them should have democratic representation in decision-making that occurs during this development process. In other words, the, the, the stakeholders shouldn't necessarily be cherry-picked to support the agenda um, of those who are, who are developing the system or alternative. And this was something of a concern in our original open letter about psychologists on the DSM-5 task force. We were concerned about representation of psychologists as a community, um, not just as singular members who might have been charged with developing specific criteria for a specific disorder. Um, so there needs to be a democratic representation of relevant stakeholders and multidisciplinary professionals. And we also talk about the plurality of perspectives. There's no single or correct way to conceptualize mental distress. And we really need to recognize um, that, that people have, you know, a, a diversity of perspectives and opinions between and sometimes within individuals. So pro the process of reform tying into our point about leadership should, should really include not only advocates of particular perspectives, but also dissenting voices to make sure that that plurality of perspectives is represented. In addition, we've recommended that um, in terms of considering the scientific evidence that any diagnostic manual or alternative um, would take into consideration what we've what we've been speaking about in terms of the very strong evidence for social and structural determinants of mental health of mental distress in addition to that there has been a great deal of evidence supporting the fact that what we call mental health problems are not categorically distinct from quote-unquote normal experience, but rather on a continuum with it. So when we talk about something uh, like depression, like anxiety, um, like suspiciousness, these are not um, these are not experiences that are specific to people who have experienced mental health challenges. 
but experiences that other people have also encountered, perhaps um, to to a lesser extent or to to in a, in a slightly different form. Um, and so, all of us have the potential for um, these types of experiences and have encountered them in in some form or another, just to a slightly perhaps different degree and kind. Um, and then. We also think that any diagnostic manual or alternative should take into consideration the lack of construct validity for diagnostic categories, if that's the case. So, for example, with the DSM, um, if, as Thomas Insel, um, former president of the NIMH, has, has pointed out, the categories lack validity, lack, um, lack scientific validity, that should be pointed out within, within the system itself instead of in the external literature. And then any developers of the diagnostic system should also keep in mind that there is very little, if any, um, predictive value in terms of causal mechanisms and treatment pathways for a lot of these categories. Again, when we're thinking about construct validity or thinking about predictive value, we're really thinking about um, efforts to improve the current diagnostic system or enhance or, or somehow modify the current diagnostic system instead of to develop an alternative. But of course, if that alternative also suffered from the same lack of validity or lack of predictive value, we would expect the developers of that system to to point that out as well. And then also we would we would expect that developers of these systems would take into account any problematic reliability um, for diagnostic categories. And this is specifically relevant to DSM-5. Um, the field trials did not yield the expected reliability coefficients for many of the categories, meaning that um, independent raters could not necessarily a good amount of the time come up with the, the same diagnoses when viewing um, examples of singular cases. They couldn't necessarily agree on a diagnosis to the extent that would be expected or ideal for many of the disorder categories in the DSM-5. This was, in fact, a major blow to the DSM-5 system on, it, on its own terms because the, um, the DSM-5 system is something of an extension of the categorical system. It's no longer multi-axial, but the, the categorical descriptive system that was introduced in DSM-3 and, and, and that system it was introduced in DSM-3 in large part to enhance reliability, so to enhance agreement among, among raters, among clinicians on what a diagnosis should be. And so the substandard reliability for, for DSM-5 was, was something of a major concern, and, and that should definitely be a consideration of, of those, uh, those who are developing diagnostic systems and should be kind of transparently reflected within the system itself if reliability is a, is a problem. Um, and finally, we wrote about alternative frameworks for service delivery. So diagnostic systems will often implicitly or explicitly um, be tied to specific types of, of services, be they psychiatric um, or, or cl clinical psychological or, or um, another type of uh, mental health service delivery. And um, we recommend, first of all, equal recognition of the variety of different types of, of mental health services, but also that there are other types of, of, of support services that are out there, community support services, sometimes religious or, or, or spiritual types of services, um, peer support services, uh, types of family support. So, so other, other systems of support and other systems of professional services that people can access um, and that, it, that it's often helpful to, for a person to receive and, and to engage in various, various types of, of efforts to explore and address the different types of challenges that, that one faces. Um, so those are, those are kind of the broader principles that, that we've made recommendations about. And so, Peter, Sarah's walking us through these considerations, uh, these large meta considerations that should go into uh, making any new changes to to diagnostic frameworks and systems. The letter also lays out some very specific and practical recommendations for immediately improving diagnostic practice that do not require necessarily a complete transformation of the existing system. Can you talk us through some of these specific recommendations and how you see them improving care in the short term? Yeah, so one of the things that's occurred to me in particular over the past uh, five or six years looking at this is, is uh, as I was hinting at earlier, that within the broader structure of, of medicine, really, we have 
diagnosis and the identification and classification of specific illnesses or diseases, but especially in the tradition of ICD, we also have uh, other aspects. So as myself and colleagues, especially a PhD student of mine, Kate Allsop, started to look at what's going on within the diagnostic frameworks themselves, we started to find things that are sort of hiding in plain sight. And part of it is that, of course, in especially in the ICD system, the ICD system is DSM because it was set up across the whole of medicine and healthcare rather than a specific project of the American Psychiatric Association. And what you have there is a system that allows healthcare professionals, but also healthcare planners, respond to the needs of their of their patients. Really, so it includes things like you know how do we account for in the planning systems of national health systems, issues like pregnancy or going for a well-man clinic or taking preventative medicine or even doing things like, you know, resetting broken bones. These aren't diseases. These, these are reasons why people go for healthcare. And so, especially within ICD, what we have is a whole system ignored within psychiatry of saying, why has this person presented for help in, in this time? So, so it might be things like pregnancy advice or even contraception. These are perfectly legitimate reasons for accessing healthcare, but they aren't diseases. And what we, what I in particular and what colleagues of mine realized is that within the healthcare system are ways of doing things differently, which in a sense don't challenge but complement psychiatric diagnosis. So we have things like phenomenological codes like self-harm, deliberate self-harm, or disrupted eating patterns, or um, codes for low mood or codes for um, guilt or, or anger, things that are reasons why you would go to see a healthcare professional but aren't diagnostic systems. Now, often these are in themselves also symptoms of wider syndromes, but they don't have to be. So one of the things that we recommended is to look at existing codes for specific experiences and phenomena. The other thing is that, of course, people go to their healthcare provider because things have happened to them. And this happens in physical medicine as well. So one that, that particularly tickles me, I can't remember the exact code for it, but there is a code in the ICD, World Health Organization system. It's a remunerable code. So you as a healthcare provider can claim costs for helping somebody who has experienced an injury because they've tripped up taking off their underwear. Now, that intrigues me because it actually happened to me once. So I actually tripped and fell and broke my toe so icd system in order to keep track of major threats to our health have codes for what is it that's happened in your life to have caused you to go to see your doctor and we ignore them so there are codes for things like adverse experiences in childhood for poverty for experiencing abuse um, homelessness these are all codes within icd and so part of our recommendation is yes we would like a total transformation of the diagnostic system but one of the ways that we get there is to start recording individual and specific experiences that already exist as codes and to start using the codes for those social determinants there. So those are two practical things. The other thing is the role of formulation. So we are, as I said earlier, very, very much focused on getting the diagnosis right. We don't focus on formulation. Both psychiatrists and psychologists, nurses, occupational therapists and so forth all are encouraged to use formulation as the basis of their care. But yet this is seen as adjunctive to diagnosis. And part of what we're recommending is that we take as much time to develop shared language for the use of formulation as we do over obsessing about getting the codes right for diagnosis. And part of what we're saying in this, in this letter is, I think, very radical, but also slightly sort of under the radar, which is, okay, if we're not going to agree on reform of the diagnostic frameworks themselves, and if we're not going to, and obviously we wouldn't, you know, insist that people change their language, fine. But let's in massively increase the extent to which we use the existing possible codes for specific phenomena. Let's massively increase the use in planning and in healthcare delivery and even in direct clinical work for focusing on social determinants, and let's pay more attention to the role of formulation as neither an alternative to or a supplement to diagnosis. And all of that can be done tomorrow. Um, we would like to reform or possibly even reject the dominant 
pathological diagnostic model. But while we're talking about that, there's a hell of a lot we can do in the meantime to provide alternatives to that paradigm. Thanks. And, and this letter is uh, addressed specifically to several international leaders in the field of psychiatry. Uh, so I'm wondering why these leaders in particular, and how do you hope that they're going to respond to this uh, open letter? So we're particularly addressing people who have leadership roles in the most dominant diagnostic frameworks. So that's DSM, ICD, and RDOC. Um, but it's fair to say that, that it's obvious in making a letter like this public that we're also um, inviting those people to take leadership in this perspective, but we're also speaking to the wider public, to the media, to healthcare providers generally. I mean, the letter is addressed to those four individual leaders, but by making it public, we're inviting them to take a leadership position. What I'd like them to do is to be open-minded. I don't want them to resign their positions or um, pretend that they've had a road to Damascus transformation. I want them to take seriously the perspectives that we're introducing. I, I would like them to consider very seriously whether they are brave enough to suggest that the uh, leadership issues, the conflict of interest issues, and the guiding values and principles issues are significant enough that they would be able to, in a sense, put their efforts under the leadership of people with uh, a slightly more democratic perspective. So instead of this being an exercise by doctors for doctors and then imposed upon patients to be something that is for the public, by the public and led by uh, somebody neutral. So, I mean, what I would like to see is, you know, a high court judge with personal experience of mental health problems leading uh, a work group on what do we do about the, the issue of diagnosis rather than a, an eminent psychiatrist leading it. And that would take bravery by the part of these leaders because it would mean you know, handing over some of their power to others. I'd also want them to have um, openness and, again, bravery in incorporating other perspectives. Um, I mean, it's fair to say that diagnostic frameworks such as um, DSM and, and ICD do speak to a, a wide range of traditions in mental health, but I would like that bravery to be to go further. So again, instead of novel diagnostic revisions being based on the assumption that there are psychiatric diagnoses to be made and our job is to make them better, to be open to people who challenge these accepted orthodoxies. So what I would like to see is those people to whom we're addressing the letter being brave enough when they approach their work to incorporate into their discussions people with radically different perspectives. As, as the British Psychological Society said a few years ago, you know, describing particular experiences as symptoms of mental illness is only one way of thinking about them with advantages and disadvantages. And to accept that and accept some of the critics of the diagnostic paradigm into the discussions about the diagnostic paradigm would be brave and honourable, but also, I think, productive. So I guess I'm, I, I, what I would hope is that when those four leaders read this letter, that they're open-minded and brave enough to think about how they could incorporate these ideas in, into their efforts going forward. Thank you. And uh, Sarah, as uh, co-chair of the Task Force on Diagnostic Alternatives, I'm wondering uh, what you imagine comes next. What are the next steps for the task force and how will this open letter uh, uh, evolve from here? You know, the truth is, Justin, that, that I'm not really sure. And, and, and the reason for that is that I think that we want to see what the response is to this open letter. And like I said, with our original open letter back in 2011, the, the response was kind of, uh, it was unexpected. It was, overwhel it was overwhelming. Um, but it also allowed us to understand more about perspectives and opinions and concerns of other mental health professionals, as well as the general, general public opinion. There was a lot of media coverage of our, our, our original open letter. And so I think that we're going to wait and see what the response is. We're going to see, you know, what mental health professionals have to say, um, what, if anything, the broader public has to say, and then um, see where people's concerns and interests lie and then take things from there. So we don't have any specific plans for next steps after the letter as of yet, but we're certainly um, going to reconvene to discuss them soon after our letter is, is launched. I don't know if, Peter, if you have any ideas about what you're thinking in terms of next steps. I mean, I, I guess part of this is to make clear 
to colleagues, to to friends, um, to those interested in the debate about diagnosis, um, where our collective thinking is up to. So in in a sense, it's a statement of where we're up to in our thinking and inviting comments further. I mean, in part, you know, these exercises are also moving forward. So, you know, we're all publishing work, we're all doing research into the validity, utility, applicability of alternatives. There's continuing research efforts um, exposing some of the inadequacies of broad diagnostic concepts. I think some of the work coming out of genetic research is interesting, where particular associations with psychological processes and with psychological phenomena are indicating some interesting potential genetic factors, but these genetic factors don't seem to ally themselves to diagnostic labels terribly effectively. And and that means that the research will go on and, and go forward. In terms of next steps, well, it'd be interesting to see what people's support for this perspective is. It'd be interesting to see what people's responses are. We need to be um, open-eared, I guess, to people's responses. So there have been challenges to this non-diagnostic way of thinking from other people. There's, there are a lot of people who worry that because the system is based on so heavily on diagnosis at the moment, how are people likely to get services? How are people likely to get help? How are, likely, how are people likely to get therapy? And also extending it further, things like the civil benefits system, the way in which people get benefits and uh, financial support from the state is often heavily dependent on diagnoses. The way in which the criminal justice system responds to mental health issues is heavily dependent on diagnosis. And so as we propose reforms to the way in which we go about making diagnoses, we've got to listen carefully to people pointing out the flaws and errors in the proposed alternatives that we come up with and to take those seriously and amend and change. We need to think about how people like lawmakers or policymakers would frame their work in the light of the sort of suggestions that we're making. So when I talk to people um, designing services, you know, they often find it a little bit challenging to think of how they would design a service that isn't predicated on a diagnostic model. And we have to think about I guess, policy tools to help people design services, to draft laws, to think about benefits policies on the basis of a non-diagnostic model. So out of this, we should listen to what people say, but then potentially think about maybe there would be work to be done in the criminal justice system. How do we deal with people with serious mental health problems in a non-diagnostic way or in a way that uses alternatives to diagnosis? that still takes account of the serious difficulties that they have. How would we allocate benefits to citizens if we didn't use a diagnostic model? So maybe there's further work to be done in those sorts of areas as well. I think that everything that Peter said is enormously important. And I I guess I probably should have specified that in waiting to see how people respond to the open letter, one kind of hope that we have is that it will help us to refine and narrow or expand um, as needed our efforts to really identify um, and promote specific alternatives to the to the current DSM and ICD system, which is a which is an ongoing effort of our task force. So so we really want to see where people's perspectives lie on what we've recommended, and then hopefully um, you know take those ways of approach of those different ways of approaching um, DSM and and ICD diagnoses and um, incorporating social and structural factors that that Peter just explained, taking those and uh, one step further and promoting different um, different ways of doing diagnosis based on people's actual human experiences, social experiences, and structural context. So that's, I think, the general direction we're headed in. It's just the way in which we're going to do that. We're, we're trying to remain open-minded so that we can, we can gather people's responses to the letter. would love to hear uh, input from, you know, Ma- uh, Madden America uh, listeners today and, 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 and others part of the, uh, the Madden America community. If people have ideas for our task force or thoughts or suggestions, we would really love to hear them. And you can, you can always reach out to us. Um, and we're also involved in, you know, um, kind of parallel scholarly and, and scientific endeavors. We've we've recently we're 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 all, we're, all, we're finishing up a series of special issues on diagnostic alternatives that have been published in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology. Um, and so we're we're trying to also, as as Peter Peter mentioned, kind of promote and disseminate our work. Um, and again, we're 
we're open to any you know ideas and feedback from listeners today. Thank you. And uh, I can make your emails available to our listeners at a link connected to this post so that people can reach out with suggestions. I also understand that professional organizations and individuals are are both invited to sign on and add their support to this new open letter, which provide a a link for listeners on uh, madinamerica.com. It seems like such an important point that you both made that uh, as, as this paradigm shifts, as we reimagine what diagnosis means, uh, uh, what frameworks look like, there's also this, this ongoing process of reimagining the sort of social institutions that are built on the current paradigm. And uh, as Peter and, and, and Sarah, you've both mentioned, uh, changing the criminal justice system and the uh, benefit system and all these social institutions that are sort of predicated on, on an individual diagnosis rather than a social one. And so it seems like there's so much, such, so much important work to be done on, on how to adjust those systems and institutions as the paradigm does shift. The last line of our letter says that as a next step, what we want to do is discuss these issues. That's the point, really, that we want to continue and press forward in an honest but in-depth discussion about these issues. And like I say, that doesn't mean how do we do what we've always done, but a little bit better. It means let's have a discussion about what is it that we're doing? Why are we doing it? What should we be doing? So yeah, what would be great is to have a broad, open discussion about all of that. But I think also, you know, it's worth pointing out that that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing when we write uh, stuff for Mad in America. That's what we do when we do podcasts. That's what we do when we write books. This is one step in let's have a debate about how we should think about and then how we should talk about our, our mental health. But all we're asking for is to have a discussion about these issues. Great. Thank you both so much for being here. And again, I'll link to the letter and to the petition in support of the letter on the website for listeners to find. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. And it was an honor speaking with both of you. Thank you so much for having us, Justin. It was an honor to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I can only echo that. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.